<laughs> so, um, I, and I'm sure you have uh, at times today been enjoying the delicious rain. At least I hope you've been enjoying it at some point. Just the, the land has been so parched here. We haven't had rain, I don't think, for seven or eight months. So, um, so I always feel great uh, happiness and empathy for the, for the land and the trees and grasses and roots and frogs and newts and all the beings that depend on water and somehow survive miraculously for a long, dry summer. And I want to read a poem by Mary Oliver called Lingering in Happiness that speaks to uh, rain, but really also speaks to how rain is uh, such a beautiful metaphor for uh, heart qualities. It's the Buddha talked about metta being gentle rain, and the rain that we had was very gentle. It was very sweet. And um, the, there's also the metaphor of how rain seeps into and touches things and embraces things, uh, like in the same way that our heart touches and embraces uh, pain and our suffering, which is what I want to talk about tonight. So the poem Lingering in Happiness, she says, after many, after rain, after rain, after many days without rain, it stays cool, private and cleansed under the trees, and the dampness there, married now to gravity, falls branch to branch, leaf to leaf, down to the ground where it will disappear, but not, of course, vanish, except to our eyes. The roots of the oaks will have done their share, will have their share, and the white threads of the grasses and the cushion of moss a few drops, round as pearls, will enter the mole's tunnel, and soon so many small stones, buried for a thousand years, will feel themselves being touched. So that metaphor of the stones being touched is what I want to talk about this evening in how our practice, how our presence, our mindfulness, imbued with kindness, touches the, some of the very painful places that we experience and have been revealed a lot on this retreat, have been talked a lot in the panels and the groups and the one-to-one -one meetings. Um, incredible array of human experience and suffering and how the practice can help work with that. So I'm partly going to continue uh, my talk from the other night. I was talking about the Four Noble Truths, and I got to the first. So you got shortchanged. So I'm going to pick up where I left off, where I'm going to begin talking about the cause of suffering. And the Enneagram and the Dharma perspectives are somewhat similar in the understanding of the causes of suffering, which are really uh, ignorance. 
not seeing clearly, not seeing how things are, not seeing the truth, not seeing or understanding our true nature, losing touch or disconnection from our true nature. And because of that disconnection from truth, from true nature, we misperceive ourselves, we misperceive each other, we misperceive the world. And out of that, we develop certain habits, fixations, passions, tendencies, as a way to compensate, as a way to fill the void, as a way to fix, as a way to try and somehow rediscover that innate peace that comes when we're connected to truth and true nature. And we've seen in you know, each Enneagram type how there's a slight uh, misperception of an aspect of the truth. And so our, our perspective is, is slanted and our relationship to the world is skewed through that uh, lens. So example for a six who, uh, when they lose touch with trust and faith in themselves or in the universe and instead live uh, filled with doubt and distrust, then the world is experienced a certain way through that lens, seen as somewhat threatening or dangerous in some way. And each the, I could go through each of the types, I won't, but how if you reflect on the, the basic misperception of your type, there's a, uh, there was a cute uh, comic uh, Far Side cartoon uh, it was a far side or the New York, I forget. Um, and it was a picture of uh, two goldfish in the fishbowl. And actually not in the fishbowl, in, in the ocean. And one goldfish is saying to the other, well, Fred, what is it that you hope for in life? And Fred says, as he's swimming in the vast ocean, he says, you know, I want the whole deal. I want the round glass bowl. I want the plastic castle and the colored gravel <laughs> and the plastic plant. <laughs> That's an example of misperception of what <laughs> truly brings happiness. And that's what these, these uh, misperceptions and fixations are. And then we build a life based on that, on that. Uh, fundamental misunderstanding and we end up with a very small cramped fishbowl <laughs> of our own making. So I want to read something from uh, Sandra Maitri's book who has written um, a couple of books on the Enneagram and she's talking about the passions she says, the passions, as we have seen, are the emotional, affective, and feeling tones or qualities that characterize each enneotype. As Naranjo describes it, they are also deficiency-motivated drives that animate the psyche. Deficiency-motivated drives that animate the psyche. Meaning that the passions arise out of the emptiness of the ego and seek 
while at the same time they obstruct the restoration of fulfillment and contentment. In the absence of contact with the realm of being, then, we are driven to search out the wholeness we vaguely remember from early childhood. Not, consci not consciously understanding that it is our true nature we experience as absent, our passion drives us to try to fill that void. So that line, I think, is very, um, very uh, poignant when she says, um, the passions arise out of the emptiness of the ego and seek while at the same time they obstruct the fulfillment and contentment. So the very drives that we get consumed in, the very passions that seem like they're going to bring us wholeness and, and fullness, like for the seven, the drive towards experience, the external uh, fascination with maximizing pleasurable experiences. It seems like it's a way to bring wholeness. It feels on one level satisfying, and ultimately it isn't. It's empty. And it leaves the soul, the being, hungry. And actually, you know, we can have a day, what they call the perfect Marin day, where we line up, you know, endless pleasurable experiences. And at the end of the day, rather than feeling really full and satisfied, it's actually fed that somewhat empty quality. So we feel actually this is an annoying existential unsatisfactoriness at the end of it, even though we may have had all these pleasurable things. This is dukkha. This is suffering. This is the unsatisfactoriness that we take birth into as humans. And as Sandra pointed out, um, that when we live through the lens of our egoic mind, our egoic perception, uh, we don't see clearly. The, the ego doesn't have the capacity to understand our deeper nature. It's like a fish in the sea trying to see water. Right? Take the fish out of water and it will realize what it's been living in but there's no awareness, just like we're not aware of air, because we're so immersed in it. As Rumi said, the one that is doing the looking is the one that we're looking for. But we're so busy doing the looking, we don't see what's already here, and hence miss understanding of the fact that all we need is actually already within us. It's already sitting right here on your cushion. So this is what the Buddha uh, talked about as dukkha, which I talked about the other night. And this, this misunderstanding leads to a, what he called thirst, tanha, this drive, this craving for experience, for being, as a way of uh, trying to uh, bring about happiness. And you see, it was said that the Buddha taught out of compassion for seeing how we create our own suffering. So we get driven, we get fixated on what it is that we want, what we think is going to fulfill us. 
and that manifests in all different ways in our lives, the way we relate to ourselves, our body, our practice. We can bring the same wanting mind to our practice and we spend a lot of time, decades even, in the self-help and developing and fixing our personality and we're still left with a fundamental dissatisfaction. So I was once um, working um, in the heyday before the economic uh, bubble went down the tube um, in a hedge fund. I was working with some, doing some coaching for some guys in a hedge fund and, and I, was, uh, I was about to work, I went to the office and um, was working with one of the traders and there was a lot of joy in the office that day and um, because the, the trader had made a particularly successful trade that made $50 million on one trade. And um, so everybody was happy because it all meant a lot of bonuses and all of that. So I met with the, with the trader later in the day uh, who I identified as a one, but I, 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 don't, I, didn't, I didn't know for sure his type, but that was my guess. And um, expecting him to be really happy and satisfied in $50 million, not a bad day's work. And um, he was really angst-ridden and, and, and tormented. And I, and I, I said, what's, what's wrong? You've made this really great, um, you know, what's happening? And he said, well, you know, it was a good day, but I knew I could have bought earlier. And I knew if I'd held on a few more hours, I could have made, you know, the four or five million dollars. And it was just, it was, like, it was so, such a wake-up call to see the, the unsatisfactoriness, the, the, the insatiableness of that longing, of that yearning, of that wanting. So, you know, as I said, I want to talk about compassion tonight, and I'll be um, speaking about that through the talk, because, um, uh, because of the nature of this because of the nature of our fundamental uh, delusion or not seeing clearly our ignorance, as the Buddha talked about, um, because of that suffering, the natural response, the healthy response, is to feel compassion. It's not, that, it's not like we choose to make ourselves miserable. It's not that we choose to not see clearly. It's not that we choose to do things that don't really ultimately serve us. You know, if we if we could free ourselves from suffering tomorrow, we would. And of course, our, we live in a culture that also supports and uh, is driven by the same delusion. You know, delusion in our minds, of course, gets gets expanded into the world stage and the wars and the greed and the, the rampant materialism and the belief in stuff equals happiness and Money equals happiness, and fame equals happiness. And, um, so this is uh, this is an ad from an outside magazine. Outside magazine, it's an outdoorsy kind of magazine. I think this is a written. I imagine the most. That's a lot of sevens who read this magazine because this magazine seems like it's really for sevens. This ad. Um, there's this guy sitting in front of his pickup truck, and he has all his, you know goodies around him. He has his bike and his dog and his scuba and his kayak and his golf clubs and his computer and his guitar and his skis and his backpack and his, you know, you name it, it's in there. And his truck and his soccer ball. And he's meditating. And 
like this. For some reason, they all do it like that. It's really. <laughs> Try doing that for more than three minutes. It gets really. It's good for your biceps, but I don't know about anything else. Anyhow, he says, the ad says, Spence has put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. Oh. That's why he also, he also has the new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup. He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. <laughs> so there you go. If you thought this meditation rap was too difficult, you can buy yourself a Ford truck. <laughs> so as the Buddha said, we're motivated by this outward seeking, craving, hunger for experience, or we're motivated by the avoidance of experience, the not wanting, the rejection, the, the fear of certain experience. So we, 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 we create a life where we avoid uh, experiencing anything that's unpleasant, anything that's unsettling. Or we try to, of course, it's very difficult because the world doesn't comply with our needs, or our partners don't, or our family don't, or the stock market doesn't, or the weather doesn't, or so again, it's a suffering. We, we, we try, we try to control, and what happens is we, we get continually frustrated because it, it's just hard to do that. You know, even on retreat, we try to create these perfect conditions and something happens, you know. It rains when we were planning a hike or we had to share a room with somebody, God forbid, or... So it's useful to reflect for yourselves. I would like to reflect. Where, where is it that you see yourself when you hear about that teaching of desire, aversion, fixation? How, where is it that you want the world or yourself or others to be a certain way? How do you use desire, longing, craving to avoid pain or deficiency? And can you feel the pain of that longing, that hunger, that endless dissatisfaction? Or the endless trying to avoid that which we don't want? It's suffering. Can we meet that with some kindness rather than judgment? It's very easy, especially when we, when we learn new um, teachings, whether it's Buddhist or the Enneagram or other models, um, I think particularly the Buddhist teachings because there's, there's a lot of idealism uh, in those teachings. So it's easy to beat ourselves up. Oh, look at me. I'm so, I've got so much desire and greed and I've got so much anger and fear and you know, I'm such a bad Buddhist and I'm so unmindful and I really should be more compassionate and loving and equanimous like the Buddha's here and I'm really just reactive and can we not buy into the judging mind that uses these teachings as a standard to whip ourselves with and instead to see, just to use them as tools for information, for understanding? So we all have these strategies. They all manifest in different ways through the types as we've been seeing. It's been very 
informative for me, and I think for everybody, in the panels and the groups to, to see how these tendencies manifest. And it's often heartbreaking. So it feels heartbreaking for me sometimes to listen to the stories of the way of, of, of one, how these, these, these uh, habits and tendencies, these fixations came into being out of the suffering, out of pain, out of childhood wounding or whatever. And how we um, you know, get gripped in these habits and we, we, we're kind of gripped in them and act them out. So today, listening to uh, nines uh, in the group and listening to how difficult it is for nines, some nines anyway, to um, really listen to their own needs. There's such a deep habit of taking care, of being so sensitive and attuned, which is a beautiful quality, but it, it's self-forgetting and, and the frustration and the anger that, that that leads and the resentment that can happen. Or listening to the ones and that 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 um, that desire that 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 intense focus in seeing that seeing what's wrong in the world in themselves in other people desire to fix but particularly that strong judgmental quality of mind that can create that can be turned inward so viciously and so painfully. And listening to, I forget the name of the woman who was talking yesterday on the panel, who said even when she's complimented, she you know, takes in the compliment and looks for the hidden criticism in case there's a criticism comes back at a later time. That's suffering. Or listening to the fours today and the, the, the fear of revealing the emotionality and the vulnerability and that tenderness of heart. I came across a poem, a Rumi poem today, that speaks a little to, to that. He says, Soul, if you want to learn secrets, your heart must forget about shame and dignity. You are God's lover, and yet you worry about what people are saying. The rope belt the early Christians wore to show who they were. Throw it away. Inside, you are sweet beyond telling, and the cathedral there so deeply tall. At some point, I wanted to read this. I may as well read it now. Um, some of you may know this. It's, we are, it's often read in Vipassana retreats, the autobiography in five short chapters. Um, it kind of speaks to the, I, I was, I was th looking at this through the Enneagram, um, given that um, we've been talking so much about habits and tendencies, and this is, this is a, a description of uh, habits. So she says, Portia Nelson says, chapter one, I walk down the street and there is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in, I am lost, I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. 
chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. (laughs) And then chapter 6. I would say, you know, the ones have written the letter to the local um, municipal council. (laughs) And... um, not realizing that the three in the middle of the night had already fixed the hole. <laughs> and the eight was just about to, you know, with a shovel, and the seven was off on a different street playing. So, but what that speaks to is, is that the, the habits of mind are so deep, and we keep falling in them. And, and often with mindfulness practice, it increases the awareness, so we see the habits and we see ourselves acting them out even more, and it becomes more painful because now we're aware that we're doing it. <laughs> so there's, an, there's often an initial period of pain, whether it's with the Enneagram or with Dharma practice, that we become conscious to a, you know, you know, the frog-like mind or the, 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 just the inability to concentrate or whatever it is, and it becomes infuriating and, and uh, demoralizing because we keep going down the same grooves. So one question that the practice asks of us is, how do we meet all of this? How do we meet these habits, these tendencies, these suffering uh, grooves that we find ourselves in, the holes that we keep falling in? How do we meet our own? How do we meet those in others? When you listen to the panel and you're hearing about the various ways that, that are painful is the, is, the, is the openness, is the like not wanting to hear it, is the compassion. There's a, an expression that says, be kind to everyone you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Each person has been carry, asked to carry a great burden. And, and those of you know, the people that we know, when you dig deep enough, everyone's carrying their own burden. You know, and the Enneagram is another way of looking at that. So we're at the last day of the retreat, the last evening, and so you know the mind naturally starts look, leaning forward to going home and going home to you know home family if we, you know, relationships or roommates or partners or whatever we're going back to work colleagues, and it's the, the same question, you know, how will we take this practice, this awareness, and this hopefully the awareness imbued with some kindness back. Ramdas once asked, he says, you think you're awake? Go live with your parents for a week. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes when we leave a retreat, we're very keen. We have a lot of insights about other people, right? And of course, this retreat particularly, because we've been exploring the Enneagram and personality, I know a lot of um, Lights have been going off. Oh, you know, my partner, my partners are so, that's what they are. And now I understand. Or my, my dad, I always, I never get why he was so. Mm. 
you know, or our boss or our colleagues, and and so there might be a lot of um, zest to go home and tell everybody what type they are, and they should go read the enneagram. This is what's wrong with them. This is what needs to be fixed. And um, so notice that in yourself. You know, ultimately these 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 teachings, these tools, are vehicles so we can be more compassionate. Just like we've, you know, there's such a sweet field of compassion that's been generated on this retreat, and especially um, because we've been listening to each other in the panels and the groups, and it, you know, the hearts just naturally open. And I'm actually, David, um, who was sitting over there, he had to leave early for, for, for personal reasons. Um, he wanted me to specifically, you know, say goodbye to everybody, and he had to, sorry, he had to leave. And he, he, the note he wrote to me, he says, he said, when I arrived, I couldn't imagine bowing to these people, and now I feel I can't go deep enough. So it's very beautiful, very touched. So I know when I first learned about the Enneagram, um, I was married and um, was married to a one, uh, and it was tremendously helpful for, for our relationship to, to know our types and to know as, as um, Polly beautifully said, to know the territory that we dwell in, to know the domain, the habits, the, the, the areas. And, and for me, it helped me um, stop wanting my partner to be different. There was a certain surrender and ease to, oh, this is, this is the general tendency that will likely manifest, and this is how it will manifest in certain situations. And it created an incredible spaciousness uh, for the relationship. So the quality of compassion, the Buddha talked about it as the quivering of the heart in response to meeting pain and suffering in another or in the world. It's the tenderness of heart. It's the, it's the heart that's aware, that's awake, that's open, that can be touched by suffering, that can feel, that can empathize with the suffering of another. Very beautiful quality. So when we hear the pain of others and our hearts open, it melts in us. We, you know, we, there's a certain, you know, compassion means to suffer with. This is from Thomas Merton. He said, Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we'd each fall down and worship each other. So one thing that I've been noticing um, listening to people this retreat is um, uh, how much wounding there is that comes from being born. 
and the, the tenderness and the fragility. And David would speak to this some um, different ways at different times. The, um, the incredible vulnerability that we come into this world with, and the inevitable, the inevitability of um, of experiencing pain. No matter how perfect and enlightened the parents are, it's impossible for for a human, for a young one, not to experience pain and suffering. And to see the relationship between uh, early development and how certain views of the world developed, how certain habit tendencies developed. This is from um, D.S. Bennett. It's a story of compassion blooming in the middle of a difficult, painful childhood. She says, Mother always assured me, any child as naughty as I was, she said, if I were you, I'd be afraid to go to sleep at night for fear God would strike me dead. She would speak these words softly, regretfully, as though saddened by her errant daughter's fate. After describing years of abuse and violation, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away, so it was bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anyone ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under my covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I would carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bites of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed. I would whisper softly to myself, there, there, go to sleep. You're safe now. Everything will be all right. I love you. So it's amazing the human capacity for finding the depths of care and kindness, even in a situation like that. It's a tremendous resilience of heart that we have. And in practice and in my experience, what transforms us, what transforms suffering, is when we develop that capacity of awareness, of mindfulness, of presence, that's intimately imbued with love, with kindness, with compassion, with care. Somebody in a group uh, expressed it in the, when she was saying that she was wanting to develop meta for herself, and the phrase she was using was, may I be held. The full phrase she said was, may I be held in loving kindness. But she put a hand on her heart and said that it's really, may I be held. That was her expression of that.
and it's that combination of awareness and compassion, awareness and love, awareness and tenderness, that um, allows us to really meet experience fully. Sometimes we can develop a very crystal clear awareness, and I know this from my own practice, that um, uh, after many years of of doing awareness practice, there was a lot of clarity, but my heart was still pretty frozen and shut down. And through a series of events, um, very painful events, the heart began to open, and I noticed a very dramatic shift in my practice and my life when that awareness was so much softer, so much more caring and uh, tender, gentle. Rumi puts it this way. He says, There is a hidden love center in human beings that you will discover and savor and nourish yourself with. That will be your food. And that's not easy. You know, it's not easy to... The, the path of compassion takes tremendous courage. It's much easier, it's, although it's not ultimately more satisfying, it's much easier to distract ourselves, isn't it? Just go get a beer, put the TV on, go watch a movie, whatever, whatever our favorite habit of distraction is, rather than feel the pain of this ourselves, the world, or another... So it takes a lot of courage. But the gifts it brings is profound. This is from the poet Roshani, who speaks so beautifully to the power of the compassionate heart when it meets the very tender, painful places. She says, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole while learning to sing. So I love this because it speaks to that um, that profound yet difficult journey of going into the heart of that which we most fear. And, at this, and as we do that, we find something that's so profoundly so much more profoundly stronger and resilient than we ever could imagine. But it takes going through, it takes going into. My young, uh, was young at the time, nephew, uh, who grew up in northern England where I grew up, he used to sing me this um, uh, nursery rhyme that he learned at nursery school that speak to this in a slightly different way, in a four-year-old way of putting it. He was, he was really into puddles. You know, put some put, put on his wellies, you know, his, whatever you call them here, rubber boots, and go plunging through the puddles. 
and uh, he would sing this nursery rhyme. It would go, you can't go under them, you can't go over them, you can't go around them, you've got to go through them. <laughs> splash, 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 splash. <laughs> and then do the same thing again. And that's the same with practice. You know, we do every, we, we try every which way we can, right, to avoid painful stuff. And ultimately, we have to go through it. That's the only way out is through, as they say. Which was why, of course, we, we have so much resistance when we come to a place like this, because we sort of take away all those exit strategies, all those avoidance strategies, and it's just, oh, you mean it's just me and me and me and sitting and me and walking and me and sitting and me and walking? Oh, God. This is from the poet Rilke, who puts it another way with, about working with sadness. He says, you have had many and great sadnesses, but please consider whether these great sadnesses have not gone right to the center of yourself, whether much in you has not altered, whether you have not somewhere at some point of your being undergone a change while you were sad. For our sadnesses are the moments when something new has entered us, something unknown, and our feeling grows mute in the perplexity. Everything in us withdraws. A stillness comes, and the new, which no one knows, stand, stands in the midst of it and is silent. So what happens in a very practical way when we go into the heart of something and experience pain, a pattern, a fixation, with this awareness that's imbued with kindness, compassion. The first thing that happens is when we meet it, we're able to hold it with a little more space, a little more spaciousness. There's a sense that there's a little more room to breathe, even if it hasn't gone away. There's just a little more room, a little more ease. And over time, that sense of spaciousness grows, a sense of lightness where we can learn to hold the, the pattern or the suffering with a lot more space, a lot more spacious awareness. And over time we come to see, we come to abide more easily in that spacious quality of mind. And we see that these patterns, these habits, these tendencies are more like passing visitors. They come, they might create huge storms and tornadoes, but they come and they pass through. We become more sky-like, that can hold the storms, that gets less rocked by the storms. The sky can still get very black and dark and, and, and thunder and lightning and rain, but there's that sense the sky is a little more immovable, that there's something more fundamental, more substantial, more real than these dramas and, and fixations and contractions and habits that we get caught in. So over time in practice, the ground shifts from being caught in the content of our experience to being more 
in that meta-awareness, meta-perspective that has more space, more ease, more freedom. And we get a glimpse of what the Buddha was talking about in the third noble truth, in the cessation of suffering, in the possibility of being free from the torments of mind, the afflictions, the the, the kleshas, as he called them, these deep habits of mind, the tendencies. In the Enneagram, one um, way of describing that on one level is a shift from the passions to to the virtues one level of that shift to freedom and spaciousness. So I want to read a few things from David's book, which is so clear. So for example, for the two, shifting more to this understanding of um, what David calls the ultimate goal of my development, what happens in this progression of awareness where we become less less um, uh, gripped by both the misguided perception about what's true and who we are and less gripped by the tendency of mind to act out. For the two, the, the, the goal moves into to realize that we are all loved for who we are not for how much we give or how much we are needed by others, that the needs of all are invariably and ultimately met. Or for the four, to realize that in the present moment we are loved and completely whole, lacking no essential quality or ingredient, that we are connected and at one with all of life. Or for the six, to realize that it is natural to have faith in ourselves and one another, that we can embrace and support life without doubt, and mistrust. So this is the good news part of the teaching. That you know we spend a lot of time going into uh, stuff in a way, in, into the content, into the into the nitty gritty ways that our ego structure moves and manifests and functions in the world and and the way it misperceives and the way we act out through that misperception. And that it's possible through awareness to, um, to be not so caught in the grip of that, to find the peace, to find some refuge in awareness. And so what that allows us to actually, the irony of it, it allows us to be more fully who we are in all the quirks and all the idiosyncrasies and all of our weird and wonderful humanness. This is from Byron Katie, who has a beautiful way of expressing that free, freeness in her life. She says, I'm happy to be this 63-year-old woman. I love that I weigh 160 pounds. I love that I'm not any smarter than I am. 
I love that my skin is getting wrinkled and loose. I love that some mornings I'm almost blind and there's just a haze of a world and I can barely see where I'm going. I love where my hands have been put and I love how I'm breathed and positioned and angled. I love what I see now as I look out the window. I love it that as I walk upstairs, my steps are not too fast or too slow. How miraculous the movement of the body is. Nothing could be better than this moment. We'd like to greet all of ourselves with that spacious, oh, I love that I'm this weight or this size or this slow or this fast or this old or this, you know, what a radical way to be. But that comes when we, when we stop identifying with that as who we are. Then there's a lot of freedom. It's just, it's a beautiful expression. We're all beautiful, unique expressions. What's not to love? So I'll close with um, one last uh, story um, since we are going back into the world and bringing hopefully some of the jewels of presence and kindness from what we've learned being with ourselves and each other. This is a story um, by, written by uh, Dr. Richard Selzer. He says, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a palsy clownish, a tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscle of her mouth has been severed. She will be thus from now on. A surgeon, I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her husband is young, her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself, he and this wry mouth, who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Embracing yourself with awareness. Allowing the flavor of compassion or kindness 
to touch your heart, your experience, your body, your mind. May all beings live with a compassionate heart. attention. So we'll have some walking for half an hour and we'll come back for a closing